mother, 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 mama's, mama's, mother, 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 mother's, mother, 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 mother's, mother, 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 mother's, mother, mother, mother's, mother, 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 mother's, mother, 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 mama, mama, mother, 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 gets into those high traffic areas, gets bumped around, and has not, have not been able to be healthy the last couple of years. Nice little pass to Brian McGratton, shot blocked, Kenny Agostino scores! Kenny Agostino's first National Hockey League goal, and Calgary leads 1-0. Broken play again, this energy line, whether it's the third or fourth line, is Brian McGratton grabs Kenny Agostino's first career goal. Don, one of the nice things about doing the podcast with you yeah. is I know that based on our history together and friendship, you always have my back. Okay. Unfortunately, the last podcast, you were a little late, and it almost broke our email. I, yeah, I blew you. Just to, just to <laughs> clarify for everyone, yes, I know the difference between Art Rooney and Art Modell, and I sincerely apologize to the entire... Steeler Nation. Oh boy! And every one of them that listens to the podcast, sure, Cleveland fans did, weren't too happy. <laughs> did uh, email me to let me know. I meant Art Rooney. It's a bad mistake. It's a bad job by me, as Mad Dog Russo would say. It's a bad, it's a bad job. <laughs> I, I'm sorry about that, but I, I want to thank Don, who did have my back after the show. And after about 27 of the 40 or so emails that we got, yeah, but, I yeah, thank you. I don't remember what. I was watching or what I was looking at online or what, but I remember, I think it was that night even, but at some point in the middle of the night, I go, Oh no, I think I let you say art Modell instead when you wanted art Rooney there. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a bad job by me. So uh, sorry <laughs> about that. And uh, thank you to all the Steelers fans for correcting me. And I would love for us to do one thing correctly. That would inspire such passion from the listeners. Yeah. I don't know what Good luck with that. I don't know what moves people to email or tweet or to download or what, but I do know that if you really want to get a reaction, do something screw do something, something up. Yeah. as bad as that. Yeah, I, I, Art Modell would never qualify for the no. <laughs> greatest owner of all time. So, no. it's a really really awful maybe the worst mistake I've made on the podcast, but Anyway, I wanted to thank you for having my back. Yes. Uh, welcome to Season 4, Episode 10, April 8th, 2014. We do have a great show today. Hopefully, we don't screw it up because we have great guests. Jeff Perlman is here. Jeff is a longtime, or we're longtime fans of Jeff and the contribution that he's made to the podcast. And his book, Showtime, has been our book club book of the month for March and now into April and Jeff's going to come on and do about 30 minutes with us on the book and some other things even give a couple clues about what his next book is going to be about because when you just write books you release one and then you start writing the next right, one right. it's not like some of the other people we feature who have full-time jobs as writers and maybe t take time off from that to do a book and then go back to that and then maybe a few years later have another book 
That's all Jeff does. So he's already at work on his next book, and he talks about that barely, but a little. <laughs> uh, also, Chris Ballard, who uh, also was once the author of a book club book of the month, uh, One Shot at Forever, another one of our favorites, and actually a guy who I almost ruined the relationship with. Uh, completely unintentionally. It was kind of a scheduling thing. And I remember we needed a basketball guy and I had reached out to Chris and also to Taz Mellis. And it was Mm going to be one of the two of them. And Chris was real kind of like, hey, I can do it, but it's got to be later. And if you want to do it next week, that's cool. And I think Taz got back to, to me and said he could do it earlier. So I went with him. And I think I tweeted that he was going to be on before I told Chris that we'd do it uh. next week. And he's seen that and he got pissed. And I knew he was mad and it was my fault. But I reached out to him and apologized. And he accepted the apology. And he's back in the fold. And I'm really glad. And he's going to join us as our first guest to talk a little bit about SI Longform in a really incredible article that he had about a basketball losing streak at the D- three level. And he's going to tell us about SI Longform and everything about that. And then we're going to end with uh, David Shoemaker, uh, who's making a second appearance, but one of my favorite newer guests from this year. Uh, we had his book, was also a book club book of the month, just a few months ago, his wrestling book. And he's going to talk to us about the WWE Network and their Hall of Fame induction ceremony, which we played a little bit off in the intro there, and WrestleMania weekend and all those kinds of things. So we have a great show, uh, which hopefully we won't mess up during the greatest of all time, which has a 1991 theme. Or the book club update, or three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right. Over the weekend and last night was the conclusion of another NCAA basketball Final Four. I'm sure one they would consider to be a very successful one. Played in front of a lot of people at the incredibly massive and always impressive Jerry World in North Texas. And uh, it started off with Florida taking like a 16-5 to lead on UConn and then losing the game by 10 points, which is always an amazing thing right. about basketball to me. That in one, you know, in one game, as short as a college basketball game can be in terms of minutes, a team can go from being down 16-5 to to winning the game easily, basically right. coasting to a victory, which is what UConn did. And then they had the incredible nightcap on Saturday uh, with the Harrison 3 to win for Kentucky to set up a strange... Seven versus eight matchup, which would usually mean Cinderella teams, but these aren't really that. You know, Kentucky was the preseason number one and managed to play themselves to the point where they were an eight seed. Uh, UConn was a seven seed that had lost by 33 points to Louisville in the month of March. Uh, And now they're the national champions Uh, after a so-so game last night. yeah, it had like a high school score. Yeah, it was, I didn't see it. But. It it was weird. There was scoring initially, and then the the breaks kind of came off of UConn a bit, and Kentucky could never kind of get over the hump. And uh, UConn hit some big threes in points when Kentucky had 
knocked it to one. And uh, UConn was banned from the tournament last year because they didn't meet the incredibly lenient standards for student academic achievement because there's no longer the SATs are no longer required instead universities need to require or need to achieve a certain amount of graduation and I believe it's amongst all their athletic programs and somehow UConn and apparently a system that includes a warning initially and all kinds of steps to avoid what happened to UConn uh, they they um were banned, and their star was mouthing during the thing about how they were the hungry huskies, and this is what happens when you ban them, and uh, a real interesting end to Napier's career, who started with a championship, had a postseason ban in the middle, and then ended with a championship. So certainly an eventful run at UConn for him. Did you hear about the guy that picked the bracket it was like in the top ten brackets in the country. Yeah, and he didn't he forgot pick the to champion. pick the championship team. He says he did, like, but he hit submit or save, and it must not have saved. Yeah, and he I don't s- know. Said for UConn sh- would have been his champion right. before the game, and he's a UConn fan, right? So that stands to reason. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the tiebreaker is the final score. I don't know if anyone else tied. him. I guess I heard if UConn would have won, he would he's have a won. Bonehead. Yeah. Ugh. People I, asked him, like, "Are you rooting for?" Kentucky now, so you... And he said no. No, because he's a UConn guy. And then I guess there's another guy named Eric Stengel, who maybe is somehow works for Letterman or something, who had a perfect bracket. Oh, yeah. But he did, he wasn't in that particular contest. Really? I don't remember who he had for the championship game, though. Wow, that would be unreal. Like, the odds of that are, like, astronomically small. Yeah, I hope I, I, I have his name right, but... Uh, something like that, but so yeah, I don't know. But one thing that I noticed uh, was that we're getting closer and closer and closer to the NCAA no longer being able to function the way they are. It's just way too big of a business to everything's coming to a head with the unionizing stuff that's going on at Northwestern and. The Hungry Huskies and all this stuff. Eventually, this is all going to come to a head and something's going to change in big-time college sports. I don't know what they're going to do or how they're going to do it, and it's way above my head. And uh, uh, But God forbid they pay the kids. Right. Anything. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it's coming to that somehow to something is happening there. And Brian Curtis, who uh, is a friend of the show, Curtis Beast on Twitter, wrote a great piece on this for Grantland today. So I'd encourage you to check that out. All right. My second thing, since I didn't have much to add to that thing, uh, the NHL kind of whiffed again on uh, Zach Ronaldo suspension. This isn't the biggest story in the world, but we do live in Buffalo, so it is, and it is a Sabres story in a year without many Sabres stories. Uh, Zach Ronaldo hit Chad, is his name, right? Chad Ruedel. Chad Ruedel, yep. After he, while he was following through with a shot, uh, and on my first, I didn't, I wasn't watching this game either. That's my interesting thing about my three things is the three things I didn't actually see this week. But I did see the replay and the YouTube clips and the Puck Daddy articles and all that stuff about this. Uh, the hard thing to me about it is he does. You can watch the NHL explanation video. They they do a good job of explaining these suspensions, even if it never makes sense. And they go down the list and basically tell you. 
Okay, the initial point of contact is the head. Check that off. He lunges into the head. Check that off. He uses his elbow or forearm. I mean, check that off. Uh, he's a repeat offender. Check that off. Four games. Like, I don't understand what circumstance would make this change. And I met someone that's some conspiracy theorist that, like a lot of people here in Buffalo, maybe it's the same wherever you're listening from, get on the, oh, well, the Sabres always get screwed type bandwagon. I, I'm not that type of person. But I do think there is some star treatment here. I mean, if Ruedel did that to Crosby is always the example given. People said he'd be done for the seat, like the for all of next season, like just joking around. But I don't get it. Four games. He check. You could check every box on there. It's a hit that could have been avoided. He didn't have to lunge into his head. He didn't have to throw his arm out. The head was the initial point of contact. He's a repeat offender. Although that might not like there might be like a. After 18 months, that status drops off or something weird like that. But every part is checked off, and then he gets a phone call, which means he wasn't going to get more than five games anyway. Right. There is a Buffalo sports writer who often refers to the NHL as a garage league on Twitter. And I think that he's just right. It's a garage league. It's run like a garage league. You're never going to – if you ever want to bang your head against the wall, try to figure out the things that the NHL does, and you'll be able to do it. And this is just another example of their inconsistency, which has long been complained about. And what I don't understand either is Ronaldo is not – he's a guy that has a reputation for being a rat. This is kind of like – He's very their, a very easily suspendable player. Right, yeah. Yes. It's their Coletta. You know, give him, give him the rest of the playoffs. Or if that's too harsh, give him the rest of the season in the first round of the playoffs. Something like that. They're not going to miss him. You know what I mean? Not that you should – and, I mean, this is the injury that everyone in sports wants to stop, right? right. The concussion. Concussions, yep. And that's a hit causing one and a chance to make a stand, and shockingly the NHL didn't do it. So, yeah, no uh, like I said, a little bit local on that one, but if you read the Puck Daddy articles, all the comments and stuff seem to agree that even Philly commenters who, I mean, Philly fan is not always known for being the most rational. But even all of them are like, boy, just when you think this guy has it figured out, he does this. Kind of like the stuff people in Buffalo would say about Coletta before they finally sent him to the minors. Uh, everyone seems to think the same thing, except for the league. So, who knows? All right, my second thing this weekend, the, another great event for the NCAA. The NCAA Frozen Four is Thursday, and a really interesting Frozen Four. The top three seeds uh, going into the tournament are in the Frozen Four. Uh, Boston College featuring maybe an all-decade college hockey player in Johnny Goudreau, uh, who's basically has at least a point in every single game all year. It seems like he tied wow. Paul Correa's record for consecutive uh, games with a point, and he's into the well into the 70s in points uh, on an amazing top BC line who is the youngest team in the country, BC. Wow. Uh, they just happen to have this one line. So can anyone stop him? Not so far. We'll see if uh, Union can. It will be the first team uh, with that opportunity from the ECAC the conference with the current national champions, uh, union led by former Sioux Falls Stampede star Sam Cota. Uh, we had a Sioux Falls Stampede player on our last show, Matt Tabram, who's uh, Denver Pioneers were the first team to fall victim to Johnny Goudreau and the Boston College Eagles. So we'll see about that uh, game, which is the first game on Thursday, and then a classic college hockey rivalry and matchup between the University of Minnesota and the North Dakota Fighting Sioux, who are the only team in the field that's not a one seed. 
So uh, wow. they they beat Wisconsin, the one seed in their bracket. So an interesting uh, Frozen Four. Johnny Gaudreau is going to win the uh, Hobie Baker this weekend and maybe a national championship. He'll be the story uh, because this will be his last weekend in college hockey. There's no reason for him to be back next year. He's done everything he can at this level. So we'll see how that plays out, and we'll see if a team like Union can win their first uh, first championship. They're the only team in the field who would have that chance. Real quick, this is not my third thing, but uh, I was on SI's Extra Mustard, which is kind of a cool site, and uh, they had their tweets on the on the side, like in a little box. And the one says that a Fox News anchor apparently called UConn the NAACP national champions. Wow, that just struck me as funny. Congratulations, uh, <laughs> <laughs> separate yeah. honor. Um, my last thing this week in an event I also didn't see, but have seen a lot of buzz about, and. It's not sports, but it does refer to like a long-running streak, and that is WrestleMania 30. The uh, yes, I did see it. End of I the Undertaker's it. streak. Shocking! I was shocked. One thing I would have said, and not to cut you off, one thing I would have said going into WrestleMania 30 is they have no chance to surprise me, and they did. That, it so had to happen eventually, right? Is he retiring? Is this it? Uh, that, w- that would be my guess. I think there's a. Uh, an- David Schumacher mentions this later. There's kind of an old running go, motto in go the out business. On your back. You go out on your back. Yep. And uh, I think that Undertaker losing a match in this way and to a guy who isn't particularly in need of that kind of epic win. Sure. It, it yeah, Brock maybe, Lesnar. Right? Yeah, right. Would maybe suggest, who's essentially a part-timer as well, Yeah, would maybe suggest that, uh, that that's it for him. So I was shocked, but... Was the match any good? No. That's what I figured. I think someone made a great point and said that if Undertaker would have won, we would have talked about how it was the worst match of his career. Yeah. So I think maybe what happened is that he got into getting ready for this because his last match was at the previous WrestleMania, or right near it, and said, this is it. This is I just can't do this anymore. And I, I heard that he has great respect for Brock Lesnar. Okay. And what he accomplished at the UFC level, being a champion there as well, which I'm sure no one would have ever thought, you know, the WWE guy could right, right. become the champion in UFC, and one did. So, yeah, it was definitely shocking. Yeah, the one thing I noticed just looking over the results of this, uh, I watched wrestling back in the 80s when everybody watched wrestling, and then I watched again when they had the resurgence in, what was it, like the late mid to late 90s? Yeah, the late 90s, the Attitude Era. Right. And a lot of those guys are still wrestling in uh, this event. Like we just mentioned. Uh, well, Hogan was the host, and the show started with Hogan and Austin and The Rock. And yeah, the that sounds like it was cool. For the first time ever, and that was very cool. And uh, The Undertaker wrestled. Triple, Triple H, H wrestled. is still there. Kane is still there. Uh, versus the New Age Outlaws, apparently. Right, who just returned this year. Are they... They were the champions this year, but I don't think they won at WrestleMania. I mean, they so weren't they weren't so much about their wrestling anyway, right? They were about their mic presence, their gimmick, yeah. yeah. And they Andre still the that. Giant Memorial Battle Royal, yeah, which was won by a definitely a rising star in the business. You could tell an unbelievably strong dude who picked up uh, the Big Show over his head and threw him over the top rope in a really impressive wow. show of strength. So what do you think? I saw your your buddy, who is the wrestling expert as far as 
people I know gave it like a C plus as an event. Yeah, you know, I mentioned this to David when you'll hear the interview later. If WrestleMania three is a ten to me, that felt like around the five or six range. That if I were to rank them all, that that would feel fall somewhere, somewhere in, the, in middle. the middle. He felt like it was better than that. So I wonder if what would go I was down as a really rating it. What was what would go down as a really bad one for you? A really bad one. I don't know if that's putting you on the, the spot. last one I watched was twenty seven and I hated it. So that so would definitely consider a bad one. I know a lot of people are saying this is the best one since seventeen. Because is I, always regarded as a really good one. One I kind of randomly watched in the middle. WrestleMania 9 isn't one that I particularly loved from the era. The first 10, 9 would be the worst. What was the one when Hogan, Hogan kind of made like his first comeback? He was like a bad guy kind of against The Rock was the main event. That was 18, I believe. I remember that being surprisingly good because I had kind of gotten away from wrestling a little bit, but I did watch that one. Uh, I remember liking that one. Yeah, that was and that that was eighteen. I'm pretty almost positive. Hogan Rock with the crazy, incredible crowd reaction to that match. Right, in right. Toronto, but yeah, not bad. All right, my third thing: the Masters is this weekend, and I just wanted to bring it up to ask you, as I always do: Does a Masters without Tiger Woods draw you to the no. TV? No, I mean weekend? with Tiger Woods, it would have been a, a reach for me to act. I mean, golf is the type of thing where if I'm getting ready to do something on the weekend or I'm in between I'm on my computer and my daughter's taking a nap or something like that. Maybe I flip the golf on just as background to whatever background noise to my playing a game on my computer or whatever. But without tiger, there's almost, I somehow I've never been a big golf fan, but somehow, uh, I used to recognize a lot more of the people. I don't know if that's true of golf in general or if it's somehow I've distanced myself from golf enough where I don't know anybody other than Tiger. I'm a Sunday major golf guy. I like to watch golf on Sundays during the four big weekends. So, And Tiger Woods doesn't really have that big of a impact, on impact for me. I, I'm going to want to see who wins the Masters this year. I like to see the presentation of the green jacket. Who's the favorite? Would you, is it Roy McIlroy, maybe? McIlroy, yeah. I mean, I, I recognize him, uh, Jason Day. Like, I recognize those names, but yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm interested enough. I'll be there Sunday at the end to see what happens. And uh, waiting for 60 minutes in the amazing race. <laughs> and the good wife. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, you got your Sunday plan there. Yeah, yeah, so I'm all set. All right, so that's it for three things. Uh, I think the way we're going to do this is we're going to take a break, come back with Chris Ballard. Then we'll do a quick book club update, and then we'll do Perlman. So let's cut it off here and cue Columbia. Our next guest is from Berkeley, California, and is a graduate of Pomona College, where he played basketball and was on the track and field team. He went on to study journalism at Columbia University, where he earned a master's degree. He's written professionally for the New York Times Magazine, the USA Today, Los Angeles Times, Men Health, and other publications. Today, he's a senior basketball writer for Sports Illustrated, and is also the author of one of our all-time favorite sportscasters, uh, Books of the Month, One Shot at Forever. He's making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Chris Ballard. How are you doing today, Mr. Ballard? Great, great. How about you? Very good. Two shows in a row for the Columbia Journalism Department. We had the very ravishing Jane Levy on last week. 
Oh, very nice. Yeah, so. Little run of Columbia going here. Um, really excited to have you back. It's been a while since we talked, and um, we were kind of setting it up off off air, and I had mentioned that I had read an article you had written recently, and you said you got to check out this one, and uh, it was about D3 sports. And as a, as a D3, I went to a D3 college, and uh, it really enjoyed D3 sports. I'm a big D3 hockey fan, I, even though... I've gotten away from college. I still try to follow D3 hockey a little bit, as much as you can, since there's such little coverage. And I want to talk to you about the actual article, but I'm a little curious about process. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about the SI long-form project, with, which this article is a part of, and kind of how SI got themselves to be a part of long-form, quote-unquote, and how it is that you ended up writing this specific getting the specific assignment. Can you tell us a little bit about that side long form process? Yeah, so I think they, you know, they've been talking about it for uh, a couple years and our first one launched last fall. Um, and, the, you know, the idea was that we've been doing these bonuses in the magazine that the longer stories the back for years and still one of the calling cards of SI, but we were a little slow to jump into the, the digital age with those. Um, so when Snowfall came out, the New York Times ran that, uh, you know, it just blew everyone's mind. It's so well done. Um, and, and for us, it was a matter of, okay, how do we translate this magazine storytelling to a digital format? And that required hiring new designers and, and trying to do something that, you know, if we couldn't match Snowfall, at least it would be in the same range. Um, and so our first one was last fall, and it was Thomas Lake's this great story uh, about an old football player, Speedy Cannon. Right. And then I had the second, I had the second one, and it was on Bison Daly, the uh, basketball player who was murdered by his brother. And that one, they were able to get sort of this shifting um, ocean, uh, sort of like a snowfall effect. And for Speedy, they had some video embedded in there. Uh, and then I think they've been wanting to, to turn them out at least once a week when possible, and that's a matter of just um, processing these things, which takes a little while, and, you know, everyone's got to code it and stuff. And so this one I probably pitched, uh, I don't know, maybe last June or July, uh, and that's some of the turnaround of these kind of things. And we want to be figured we want to run it around March Madness. So I had a lot of time, but just getting it on the on the docket early. Um, and the story idea came, you know, actually, as, as the story starts, it came, talked to my brother. I was interested in writing about perhaps the Caltech basketball team and their conference losing streak, uh, which has gone on, you know, like kept broke with like over 200 games the last 10 years. And as we were talking, he said, well, what about Haverford? And, and I, I knew the story, obviously, but I had to decide whether uh, I thought it would work for a, a general audience. And then the more I talked to him, then I started talking to some of the guys on the team, and these great stories came out. And I was like, yeah, I think this could really work. Um, and then I had to sell that the editors, then the event editor was Matt Bean, uh, who's since gone in here weekly, and he loved it from the beginning. He thought it was sort of read like a, an American pie meets bad news bears kind of deal. Um, so he encouraged me to do it. Uh, and I didn't really start on it until like late fall or or even last winter, um, around November and December, in earnest, uh, trying to get it all set up. I know that you've obviously, you've authored books and you write pieces that can be this length in the magazine, but you also write pieces in the magazine that can be shorter in length and obviously easier to report, maybe quicker to write. Tell me a little bit about, as a writer, uh, where do you fit in terms of preferences? Maybe 
covering a game or a series and writing an article like that for the magazine as opposed to really sinking in and on reporting and, and having the extra legroom to write a piece this long and not have to worry about the restraints of the magazine. Do you have a preference either way? Do you like to do a little bit of both? Or uh, where do you kind of fall in terms of being a writer? I definitely prefer the longer ones. Uh, you know, Early on, the first six or seven years that I was at SI, I did a lot of the, you know, you'd go to go cover an NBA playoff series and you'd be there for you know, three days and then you'd file something, stay up all night, Sunday night and file it for the next day. There's a certain you know buzz you get to that. There's an adrenaline pump to having to get everyone and transfer the tape and, and you turn it all around on a tight deadline, which is you know nothing like a newspaper deadline. You have an overnight, but still for magazine level, that's, that's tough. Or sometimes we'll be writing for the web right after a game. Um, but I feel like for me at least, you know, every person has their own what they're good at and what they enjoy. And I really enjoyed doing the, the deep dives where you can look at it as a nonfiction narrative and, okay, you know, how can I structure this and, and how can I really bring something to light and make people feel something? And that's always the goal is for a reader to, to finish a story and, and feel something. And that's harder to do with those short ones. You can do it in columns, certainly, if you have a powerful column, but um, it takes some time to, to find how it connects with someone. I don't know if anyone's mentioned this yet. It probably has. I mean, you've gotten a great reaction to the piece, but I couldn't help. And we, we spent a lot of time on this podcast reading One Shot at Forever and talking about it with listeners and talking about it with you and being big supporters of the book. But as I was reading this piece, I just couldn't help but think like, man, Chris Ballard should just write about coaches. This guy knows how to bring coaches to life in writing. I mean, just thinking about <laughs> yeah. – I, I don't know if anyone's mentioned that, but it's just like, like wow, like <laughs> – and that could be his thing. Like, you should just write about every if, – if there's any coaches out there, like, saying, hey, someone needs to tell my story, you need to pitch to Chris Ballard, see if you can get him to write about you because you can write about coaches. You turn these guys into a different – you just bring them to life. Like, I, I don't know. Is, is, did you think of that at all? Like, just kind of like – I don't know. Yeah, you know, it, it's definitely uh, – thank you for saying that. Um, this, you know, David Hooks is sort of the antithesis of Lynn Sweeten. Totally, totally. Yeah, I, and so I was thinking the whole time. <laughs> A different kind of coach, but I've ended up doing a lot of coach stories, and I think that uh, that just comes from having grown up playing all these sports, and then especially now being a parent for me, there's this uh, you know there's an analogy you can make between parenting and coaching, and, and, and providing guidance and all kind of things. I find it fascinating. Uh, when I was talking to Doc Rivers for a story recently on DeAndre Jordan, we ended up talking about you know what he's taking from parenting that he uses in coaching and vice versa. Uh, so I think that might be part of it. The older I've gotten, having my own kid, but also just having, I mean, I had all my sports experiences were so powerful for me and some of them negatively, some of them positively, that I'm always interested in these coaches who have find a way to reach kids. You know, I coach like my seven year old daughter's soccer team now. And you know, it's really hard. But anytime I see someone who does it so well and changes people's lives, I just think that's one of those, you know, it's like teachers. If you can, change kids' lives at that age has such a profound effect. So uh, I'm always fascinated with that, especially in this day and age of so many coaches who, even at the lower levels, treat this as like a, as if they're, you know, working for the CIA or something. They treat it so seriously. The kids are cogs. So when you find these coaches that really connect to people, um, that to me is, is just a really cool thing. Yeah, and I was thinking about my own college when reading this. I went to SUNY Fredonia in New York, and uh, we have a 
a once proud hockey program. And we've essentially had the same coach the entire history of the program. There is one guy there for the first year and a half or so, but they weren't quite D3 yet. And then it's, it's been the same guy the whole time. And, uh, they won or they lost a national championship game to Middlebury, who was in the process of winning five in a row and went to a D3 frozen four the year before that as well. Uh, but Mm -hmm. since then, and even since I've been to the program, we've had hard times similar to in your story. Uh, I think they only won five games this year. The leading scorer only had 14 points. Uh, sellout at the arena is about 1,500. There's usually only 100 or 200 students there. And I've been struggling with expectations at D3 schools. And I was thinking about this a lot when I was reading your piece. And I know eventually Coach Hooks was forced out maybe or left. But I was thinking about expectations and in, in D3 sports. And, and uh, what do you – do you think that – you know – you mentioned recruiting, I mean, and there's a budget. I mean, are, are the schools spend money on the sports? And uh, you mentioned uh, little at this school. But um, do you think that, uh, you know, w- what do you think about expectations in D3 sports and uh, the long leashes it seems like coaches can tend to be on in them? Well, part of what drew me to this story, such as, you know, my brother went to Haverford College, uh, and then, you know, a year later, I went to Pomona College, and we had a program that was uh, ascendant. Uh, you know, Greg Popovich had been the coach just a couple of years before, and uh, they ended up being, uh, when I was there, one of the best D3 teams in the country. And part of that was they had the resources, and they had Pitzer, which was affiliated with it, where you could recruit uh, players who might not academically meet the level of Pomona. Um, and so, like, my you know, the JV team of Pomona when I was there, the starting front line was, it was like 6'7", six, 6'8", six, and 6'9". Uh, and then at Haverford, uh, where they didn't have the budget, and it, they had these really tough academic standards, they didn't have any way to, to get kids in. Um, you know, their, their starting front line was, they ended up having a guy who was 6'7", but for the most yeah. part, it was 6'4", six, 6'5", six, kind of guys. Um, and that's, I think, it's a cultural thing. You know, if sports, sports are valued, um, at that D3 level, or you have a coach who just really is an amazing recruiter who can convince kids, or a school that just uh, you want to go there regardless, and then you're going to get good athletes who might choose. Like we had a guy at Pomona, Bill Cover, who um, could have gone to Stanford and played at Stanford. He probably would have been, you know, uh, like a sixth or seventh man at Stanford. He chose to go to Pomona and he ended up being the conference uh, all-time leading scorer. So that's pretty cool to be like the big fish in the little pond, but that's a tough thing to convince that level of athlete to do. Uh, and, you know, that was, they were talking early 90s. And with Haverford's case, you know, here's David Hooks comes in. And for the, for the listeners who haven't read the story, the basic idea is that Haverford had a 40-game losing streak uh, in the early 90s, ends up in Sports Illustrated for it. Uh, and it's just the, the story of the players and the coach trying to deal with this and get through it. Uh, and so Hooks came in. He had to coach both lacrosse, lacrosse and yeah. basketball. Yep. And he's getting like thirty-five grand a year, and he's got no assistance. So he's really set up to fail in that situation. It's really difficult to imagine someone today succeeding in doing that. Yeah, yeah, that, his circumstances were unbelievable, and it was, it was so interesting how he's still one of the more interesting parts about the pieces. And I'm sure your brother gave you a glimpse into the culture. Maybe what made this team so interesting is they still practiced and played like there was a chance to win the D3 national. You know, like they 
put the work in still. And there's a really interesting uh, line in the story where I think one of the players, it might have been a quote, says, I found out that caring about it a lot and trying really hard wasn't enough. I thought that was one yeah. of the more interesting and yeah. profound lines in the whole story. Well, you see, these guys are so smart, and they've been so successful, and then they get into college, and then they're all good on their high school teams, and to be hit in the face with no matter how hard we practice or you know how well we run the offense or what good teammates are, you know they could each maximize their talent and still lose by 50 points. Like That's tough because you're always taught, hey, if you work hard enough, it's going to work out for you. Um, I think those guys, some of them residually still carry that within today. Yeah, it's 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 an unbelievable experience and an unbelievable piece. We're talking to Chris Ballard from SI's, making his third appearance on the show today. You can find him on Twitter at SI underscore Chris Ballard. He's been a part of the SI Long Form uh, Project, which is, what is it, about six months old now you've been doing uh, the Long Form? Has it been that long? Uh, yeah, six, six, seven, something like that. Yeah, six or seven months and uh, some great stories out there. He's been kind enough to give us some time today. Uh, now, I know there's a long-form app, and you can subscribe to Sports Illustrated through that, and you can find it on the regular website. Is there an optimal way to find the long-form stories? Yeah, there's a, a landing page that has all of them, and they're all free. You know, It's like a, the magazine to pay for, obviously, but part of this is running it through our um, uh, website. And if you just go to si.com backslash long-form, uh, you'll see all of them. So the first one that comes up is the Hafford Hoops. So you scroll down, you'll see uh, there's a March Madness one, a Bass Fishing one by Steve Rush, and it was excellent. Um, there's some Olympic ones. There's uh, You go all the way back to the, the Tebow one by Lake, and Tim Layden had a really good horse racing one. And then the, the two bottom ones are the ones we mentioned earlier. But, yes, yeah, fi.com backslash long form will take you right there. Yeah, it, is this uh... – one last thing, because 15 minutes with you, wow, that went by quick. But uh, it, Wertheim, and uh, I know there's a second guy whose name I can't think. We know John really well. He's been on the show many times. Uh, is this part of uh, kind of uh, the shift in the magazine? Are we seeing kind of – is this a, a sort of the effect of a new regime? Are we sh- are we seeing uh, kind of the ways that SI is responding to the digital revolution now? Is this like one step in the process? I, yeah, I think that's fair to say, certainly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, you know, sort of going forward, this is what, this is what the future needs to be for, for places like SI. So the, the more we can do it and the better we can do it now, you know, hopefully the, the better we'll do in the future attracting readers and, and giving them something they don't find somewhere else. Well, thank you so much for, for coming back. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, thank you so much. I wish we had more time to talk about the NBA, but I'm sure we can do it again soon. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Chris Ballard, for being on the show again. At SI underscore Chris Ballard and gave you all the stuff for the long form. But uh, thank you very much. Hey, thanks a lot, Steve. All right, I want to thank Chris Ballard for being on the show. A little disappointed we didn't have more time to talk a little bit of NBA with him, but hopefully we can track him down sometime during the playoffs and uh, talk a little NBA with one of the best NBA sports writers in the country. And SI's just uh, got a rich history of great basketball writers from Jack McCollum to Lee Jenkins to Chris Ballard. They got great ones. Uh, Speaking of former great sports writers from SI, uh, the last time I'll say... Showtime, Magic, Cream, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty of the 1980s. 
our book club book of the month by Jeff Perlman. In a second, we're going to talk to Jeff all about this book. I got some emails from some people out there who have read it, and I have those for Jeff. We'll ask him some questions about what was all in all a really, really good book. It's interesting because the sport that I would least want to read books about is certainly basketball. And in the history of the book club, some of the best books that we featured have been basketball, have been basketball books. Jack McCollum's Dream, Dream Team, Team book yeah. was great. Uh, Gene Wojciechowski's The Last Great Game about Duke and Kentucky and the Christian Leitner shot was great. Uh, this is great. So we've had some really good basketball books. Uh, for April, we're going to feature a baseball book. Uh, from a guy from the Czech Republic who lived out a dream in writing it. Uh, Jonah Carey, who's the biggest Montreal Expos fan I've ever known of. Yeah. Uh, got to live a dream and write a book called Up, Up, and Away, The Kid, The Hawk. Rock, Vladdy, Pedro, Le Grand Orange, Yopi, The Crazy Business of Baseball, and The Ill-Fated but Unforgettable Montreal Expos. I can't wait to say that 30 times in the next month. Uh, by Jonah Carey is the book club book of the month. And uh, we were talking a little bit about, with Jeff, which you'll hear in a second, we were talking about blurbs uh, on the back of the book. Okay. And Jeff was talking about how he never had as many as he did on this book. And I think we said there's seven of them. And I noticed that on Up, Up, and Away, yep, there seven. are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of them. Chris Ballard is one of them, interestingly. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing. Okay, so on the back of Jeff's book... There are blurbs from two former guests on the Sportscasters, Ballard. Jack McCollum and right. uh, Chris Ballard. On the back of Up, Up, and Away, there are blurbs also from two former Sportscasters guests. The last show, Will Leach, was on, and two times we've been lucky enough to have a former sports writer of the year, Joe Poznanski, oh, right, who gave yeah. a blurb. So, And this is the second – this is this is the second – month in a row that the book club author has had two books books in the book club because one of our very first books in the book club was the extra two percent right by jonah carey his book about the uh tampa bay rays so again up up and away by jonah carey book club book of the month all right let's do this i'm excited jeff perlman Our next guest is from Mayo Pack, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Delaware. He spent seven years at Sports Illustrated, where he wrote mostly about baseball, before leaving for Newsday. He spent some time at Newsday and then left to focus on writing books, where he has found huge success. Uh, his last book, Sweetness, The Enigmatic Life of Walter Payton, is one of uh, our all-time favorites at the Sportscasters. His new book, Showtime, Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s, is a New York Times bestseller, a Los Angeles Times bestseller, and uh, a huge success everywhere. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our good friend, Jeff Perlman. How are you doing today, Jeff? You know, I'm good, but I feel like you say, you know, a warm sportscaster's welcome, but you don't say it with the warmth that I would expect from someone <laughs> saying warmth. I'm I, looking for more oomph, man. I, I'm looking for more oomph. I feel the warmth in my heart, especially for a guy like you who's been so good to us over the uh, your many appearances on the show. So I, I mean the warmth. All right, I guess I'll take that. But I never got my free T-shirt and mug. That's a, you know, that's a promise with every appearance on this. <laughs> we don't have either. As soon as we have T-shirts and mugs, I promise to uh, to send you one. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why do you think I'm doing this show? I'm doing it for the T-shirt and the mug. What the hell? Ah, jeez. Wow. I hope you're the only one because otherwise I got a lot of explaining to do to the uh, 
No, that's a bummer. I yeah. tell all my friends, do this show, you get the t-shirt and the hug. Oh, geez. All right, I'll, I'll be okay. I'll Yikes. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I'm really curious about several things with this book, but I always like to start with process. And I wonder how quickly after Sweetness is out and people are reading it, is the wheels turning for Showtime? Like how quick of a turnaround is that? Well, I'm always, uh, as soon as a book, I mean, really, I, I mean, this is what I do for a living. You know, a lot of writers, a lot of guys who, who are also in this business, they have full-time jobs, you know, and I don't, I mean, this is my job. So it's, uh, as soon as I hand in a book, I'm not the same as I'm thinking of the next book. I'm always like, all right, what's next? What am I doing next? Um, now it sometimes it takes a while to get a deal and you have to, you know, you have a lot of negotiations and it's back and forth and maybe you think you have the greatest idea and someone else thinks your idea sucks. So it's, it's a lot of back and forth. Um, I didn't really start hard on this book until uh, Sweetness came out. So um, it wasn't, it was, it was probably, I, I was probably a little, I was anxious to, to get working on a project. And then with the really negative backlash uh, that I got with, with Sweetness, uh, I think I really needed to get going on the next book because that was a really depressing part of my, my career right there, those, those weeks after Sweetness came out. So um, this book was, for me, in, in many ways, sort of a, uh, not to exaggerate, but it was kind of like a lifeline for me. Like I needed, I needed to, to move past that experience and, and go into something a little lighter and, and sort of more jovial. So, so that's where I was with this. I, and I hope you know how frustrating that is for me to hear you say, just in the sense that we love sweetness. That should have been a triumph for you. I mean, that's literally one of the best sports books I, I've ever read. So it just it pains me a little bit for you that you didn't get to enjoy what a great book that was. Well, I appreciate that. It was miserable. It was truly miserable. It was the worst experience of my life uh, professionally. Um, it sucked. You know, I still like, I don't hold grudges. I really don't. I'm not, my wife would agree with this. I'm not a, a grudge holder. I'm not a guy who like, I just, I like liking people and I like not holding grudges, but I can't, you know, to me, uh, <laughs> just being honest, like Michael Wilbon, who killed my book without having ever read the book, uh, tore it apart, you know, tore my integrity apart, um, based off of, a, an excerpt without having read the book. I, uh, that's one guy I lost a, a ton of respect for. And, and I really actually blame for a lot of that because he really set the tone as did some other sort of Chicago guys. Um, having never read the book. But at least other guys apologized and, and later acknowledged that, that they were wrong. He never did. So for me, uh, a lot of, that, you know, a lot, of, a lot of lost respect right there. Well, I was going to ask you this later, but I don't, I don't mind jumping around. And since we're here, it makes mm-hmm. the most sense to ask now. But I was wondering about, I think, getting to know about Jeff Perlman, the sports writer. I don't, I don't know Jeff Perlman, the person that well a little bit i get glimpses he's very handsome he's very handsome (laughs) i get glimpses through social media as we all do into each other into each other's personalities but i know that there's this uh i used to work in in buffalo public schools and there's these personality assessments it's called true colors if you ever heard of it look it up it'd be something fun to do with your kids you you and your kids would love it but um Mm -hmm. it's basically uh you take these tests and and some people are orange and that means they're real adventurous and crazy and then there's some people who are gold and they're real organized you're you strike me as someone who's really blue someone who uh tends to be uh sensitive someone who wears his heart on his sleeve type of a guy and i was wondering about sweetness and, and i knew how that had affected you and i wonder now when you when the when the excerpt went out to sports illustrated this time 
and people got to read this excerpt, and it was certainly a, a much different reaction this time around. There wasn't I, – I still haven't – and I looked. I did look. I read a lot of reviews. I've seen at worst a so-so review. I haven't seen anything overwhelmingly negative. How is that affect? How is this the, the, the more – I'm trying to put it this way. The more, uh, the more universally liked, if we're generalizing, this book has been more liked than uh, there was the, the negative that you mentioned. How does that make you feel as a writer? Oh, it's, it's, you know, I, so I was, uh, it's all really, uh, it's really good questions. I'm not just saying that, like, uh, because it's, it, again, coming off of Sweetness was really hard. It was really, really hard. And it's probably my favorite book I've written. And yet it was by far the most negative experience after a book. And, um, I was really like gun shy with this book more so than I, I've ever been before and, and tiptoeing and nervous, not in the reporting, but in the aftermath and how's it going to be received and, what are people going to say? And especially when you have another SI excerpt. And, um, so I was really paranoid and I was, I was like, uh, who's, you know, who's going to come out of the woodworks about this one and what are people going to say and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, the excerpt runs and all I hear is, is, wow, that was a great excerpt. I mean, even from people with the Lakers, all I heard was, wow, that's a great excerpt. Um, Linda Rambis, who is, uh, Kurt Rambis's wife and has worked in the Lakers front office for a long time. Someone I've become friendly with, you know, I, I sent her a copy of the book and I, you know, I've heard of good things and Jeannie Buss tweeted out, you know, like, so it's been, uh, reinvigorating and really, you know, uh, for me, just a joy, like a true joy. And it's kind of taken away the sting for the most part from that last experience. And it's also, you know, people always think they really do. People always think that like writers, you know, all publicity is good publicity and that we, we feed off of like uh, the negative. Oh, you love that stuff and blah, blah, blah. And it's just not really true. It's not true with me. You know, like, first of all, not all publicity is good publicity. I would rather have had, I would rather have had a much more positive reception for sweetness and it had not made the bestseller list than, you know, made the list, but it just, the whole experience sucked. Like, I don't like negativity. I don't like, like people calling you a, uh, you know, a million different things and threats and people burning the stupid book and, um, it's a long-winded answer, but the Laker experience has been a complete 180 and much, much more joyful, and it's kind of uh, allowed me to sort of move past what I probably had pent up for a long time. Now, I'm pretty sure you told us last time that Sports Illustrated actually picks what specific part of the book. is that Was that correct this time around? Am I right about that? Am I remembering that correctly? Well, they don't, um, they consult. I mean, I didn't, I certainly was fine with the Walter Payton excerpt. It's like, the easy answer for me at the time would have been like, oh, I can't believe that I did that. But I was, they told me what they wanted to go with. And I was like, great. Right. I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting part of that Walter Payton book. So I was fine with it. And with this book, you know, this is actually different because the two guys who are in charge of SI, uh, Chris Stone and John Wertheim, happen to be two really good friends of mine. The guys I came up with at SI. So, um, so in this case, you know, it's pretty much, you know, how do you feel about us going with this? And I said, great, that's great. I have no problem with it. But there's nothing in that book I would have said, I don't think there's anything in the book. I would have said, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Cause it is your, uh, it is your work and it is, you know, I mean, it's all stuff that you reported and you worked hard on. And to me, it's just an honor or whatever that the magazine is, is doing it. So, you know, I don't know. They, they let you, they let you have some say, but, but the final say is certainly theirs. 
Yeah, that's what I was curious about. If if this time around, if if you were, you know, going into that process, if you were, if you like, you know, dipping a toe in the pool, like, well, I don't know about that one. What about this one? But yeah, I think we, think you 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 got to what I was looking for on that. Going back a little bit to about processes, which is something I'm always maybe more curious about than other people. But you mentioned that right away you get going on the next book because you are a professional book writer. That's that's what you do. I wonder. it seems like uh, I recently heard an older uh, Howard Stern interview with Judd Apatow, and he was talking about how as the, the movies became more successful, it was easy to get the scripts read and, and to get the movies made and to get the backers. Is it similar with books? Has your now that you had have multiple New York Times bestsellers, and even though there was maybe a negative reception from some people for sweetness, it still did very well. It's still a New York Times bestselling book. Does having that on your next to your name, does that make it easier to get the next book going or is it still a, a fresh process every time in terms of making deals with publishers and, and getting the green light to go where you want to go with the books? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the thing is, first of all, there's different, like, there's different levels of like, uh, of like best-selling authors, right? I mean, there's like Laura Hillebrand and, and Stephen King and Michael Lewis and Mitch Album, And those guys are like, uh, those are like the DiMaggio's, <laughs> you know, they're like the Ted Williams or whatever you want to say, the Joe Montana's, they're the guys, the books aren't only on the bestseller list, they're people on the bestseller list who, um, who are going to sell hundreds of thousands of copies, right? And they probably don't even have to write a book proposal anymore of any sort. They call and they say, this is my idea, and their agent goes around and says, here's the idea, and they get a deal, and they get a big deal. And uh, I would be, um, what would I be? If those guys are like DiMaggio, I would be like a guy who makes maybe the all-star team a couple of times, you know, like, I don't know who I'd be. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not like in that Jeter class. I, I, you know, I'd be like a guy like Cesar Cedeno or someone who's like had a couple of, like my books sell and they sell well. Uh, and I've had a good run, but like my name doesn't carry a book, you know, it probably carries a book more than it did 10 years ago when I started but I don't think people are buying a book because Jeff Perlman wrote the book. They're buying the book because the subject interests them. So I always have to, I think it's easier. It's certainly easier than when I first wrote a book. Um, it's easier to get a deal now because I've had success and, and you show that, I mean, I, I always deliver on time. Um, I, people know when they buy one of my books, like when they, when a publishing house buys one of my books, I know I'm going to report the hell out of it. They'll bust my ass on it. I mean, I, I always think I, I can't promise it'll be the best written book just because there's so many great writers out there. I, I can't say, like, I'm the greatest writer in the world, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I feel like I'll, I'll, report, I'll report anyone and write it well, you know? Um, so I think the track record, having four bestsellers, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a guarantee. Again, I'm not like Laura Hillebrand. Her books will sell a gazillion copies. But it's definitely easier than it used to be because once you establish a track record, I think people are more comfortable with your, with your results. So it sounds like then... Uh... Tell me about settling on the Lakers then, because it seems like, all right, Jeff Perlman's probably going to get a book published, but maybe the thing that's going to swing them the most or bring the best guarantee is if I can bring a topic to report maybe that hasn't been reported too many times, or if it's even been reported once, it's maybe kind of a half-assed book that happens occasionally. Uh what was it about this subject? How did you get to this one to think that this is one I can definitely sell and then ultimately turn into 500 pages that are going to interest people? Well, the funny thing about this book, it's the first time that I've written a book 
where it turns out there was a, re- a really good book already written about the subject. Like, uh, all the other books I've written, I felt like there was a hole where Absolutely. I, I can write a definitive book here. And, and uh, there's a book called Winning Times. It came out in 1986 by Steve Springer and Scott Hassler. Um, and it was really good. It was. It was really good. And if you read the, the end notes of my book and the, and the index, there are a lot of, you know, I, I certainly am not shy that I use that book uh, for help. I mean, it was terrific. Um, I didn't actually know about it until, uh, until I started reporting. Um, it didn't sell very well. It was, it was obscure because Season of the Brink by, uh, John Feinstein came out at the exact same time. So it kind of went under the radar. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't know about it because I, I don't know a hundred, maybe if I read that book first, I would say, uh, maybe this isn't a good subject. Um, so, you know, I just thought, I, I thought first and foremost, um, I love basketball. I really love the NBA. I love the 80s. Um, I was a kid who has very vivid and fond memories of watching the Showtime Lakers and the Celtics and all that stuff. Um, the Lakers are sort of like the Cowboys in the, and the Yankees, and you know, in that they have huge followings. So you're giving yourself a better shot of selling just by the topic itself. But, you know, nobody wants a book about like the. Uh, whatever, the 1991 Cincinnati Reds. It's just not a big enough following <clears throat> that you could justify it to a, uh, excuse me, to a publishing company. So um, big audience, hadn't been a ton done on it. And even when I read Winning Times, which was terrific, I thought, well, it came out in 86. It was, it was a little more than midway through. There's still a lot to tell there. Um, and I always think Lee Montville said something really, really smart once to me. I've probably said it on your show before, but... He, uh, he was working on a Babe Ruth book, and I asked him, I said, um, I said, haven't I read a ton of Babe Ruth books done? And he said, yeah, but there hasn't been my Babe Ruth book. And he wasn't saying arrogantly. He was saying, basically, everyone has a different take. Everyone has a different sort of viewpoint that they come from when they write a book. So there have been other Laker books, but no one had done my Laker book, you know, in the way I wanted to do it. So, so I don't know, it worked out pretty well, I think. Yeah, and speaking of Babe Ruth, Jane Levy just sort of quasi-announced on this show last week she's working on a Babe Ruth book. So more, wow. Babe, more Babe Ruth books to come. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. How about that, right? Well, funny. Uh, I told you off uh, when we got started, you know, I since Sweetness, I've read all your books now. Uh, Sweetness was the first one I read, but I went back and, and read all of them, even though you 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 told me, don't read the Clemens book. And I said, I'm not going to listen to him. I'm going to read the Clemens book anyway. And I did. And uh, I was... You know, sort of disappointed. I think I figured out. Do you remember this? Me emailing you and say, I know what your next book's about. I know you're not going to tell anyone, but I figured out. You're writing about the Lakers from the 80s. you remember this? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I had kind of figured it out, and you didn't exactly confirm it, but I, I knew. I knew it was about that. So I was preparing myself. I'm like, all right, he's going to write about basketball. I'm from Buffalo. You know, basketball's not huge here, but whatever. And I had to push through the first three chapters, but then I got into just reading a Jeff Perlman book, I think. It your voice really kind of came through and your style of reporting and, and I got into it. And one thing I think I really liked about it, and I sort of mentioned this a little bit, I tried to do different interviews, but like I've been joking on Twitter, you've been a lot of places. So I was hoping there'd be something left for me here at the end, but uh, it could have been really easy for this to turn into a magic Johnson AIDS book. And I think you did a really great job of like, there's a lot of big personalities and that one could have very easily dominated the book. And I think my favorite part about it is how much I got to learn about the other personalities that made up the team 
it didn't turn into, yeah, this is a Lakers book, but it's really about magic. That yeah, well, had to take is, some guts no, and I a mean, lot of effort yeah. to avoid that, right? See, it's not hard. The thing is, like, uh, there's a few things. I, I thought you were going to say, like, what I really didn't want it to become was Magic Bird. It could not be a Magic Bird book. This one written about to death. And I feel like it's really simplistic, actually. Like, overly simplistic and overly done. And the Lakers, Celtics. Like, it's been written about a million times. There's so much more to it. And uh, the thing I'll tell you, like, you know, over the years, every now and then, someone will say, like, some editor will say, like, oh, well, you need to think of your audience, right? Either in books or when I've worked in newspapers or even in SI, you need to think of the audience and the reader. I think it's the biggest bullshit advice ever. Like, you should never think of your audience. I'm actually being serious about that. You should never write thinking about your audience because it doesn't work that way. You're, you're going to have a gazillion eyes looking at your stuff one way or another. Um, and there is no such thing as, like, your audience because it's such a diverse population of people. So you can't, you can't like, think, oh, I, I, I sure hope they like this. I, I, is this the right thing I should do? Like, no, definitely not. You write, like, you write for yourself. You think about... What would I like to read about? What do I enjoy? What intrigues me? Who, who, who interests me? And I've always, from the time I was a kid, I'm a huge fan of the B, C, and D characters. Like, huge. I love the bench guys. I love the backups. I love, like, guys who are drafted in the fourth round. You know, like, I'm a fan of that stuff. I don't know why. I have no idea why. But it just does it for me. So um, the idea of a Magic Johnson book would bore the hell out of me. I don't want, I don't want to write that. I don't want to write a Kareem book. Like, I'm a fan of, and if you read my other books, which you've had, like, I focus on the B characters a lot. You know, Roger Clemens' book, not my favorite, but, like, to me, the star of that book is his brother. It's not him. You know, like, the Mets book. I love Ed Hearn. I love Raphael Santana and Wally Backman. It's not all about Dwight Gooden and Keith Hernandez. But that's just, that's me as a writer. I like the Mark Landsbergers and the Earl Jones and the, and the Wes Matthews. Those are the guys to me that make a book. And if I were to write another Magic Johnson book, I would, maybe it would sell better, but I would be bored out of my mind. That's interesting. And it's funny you say that. That's journalism, I think, 101, too. The first thing they say, consider your audience. I like to hear, I like to hear things like that debunked. I don't know. I always like to well, challenge things like that. But that doesn't make sense. I mean, like, I used to... You know, like, there are two things that I used to hate in journalism that you'd hear. you hear that, think of your audience, consider your audience. I'd be like, that's nonsense. That's just stupid. And the other thing, they used to have this thing in newspaper called a nut graph. And I was at the Tennessee, and they kept trying to have me write a nut graph. You need a paragraph in the third or fourth paragraph, uh, fourth paragraph of your story telling the reader what the story is about. And I'm like, I guess there's a, there's a room for that at some point. But it's so simplistic. Like, writing is so, like, to me, there aren't, there are rules, but you try to like almost like avoid them, and like you want to do things differently and new and funky, and not not for the sake of it, but just like you want to tell a story in your own voice in your own way. So when people come up with rules like that, it always it always gives me the the, the willies. I really hate it. The sportscasters are here with one of our favorites, Jeff Perlman, whose new book, Showtime, Magic, Cream, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s, has been our book club book of the month this month. Uh, enjoying success, New York Times bestseller. I, I noticed you posted it's a Los Angeles Times bestseller. And uh, one thing that I was really, when I first got it, and I was looking at it, and I was looking at the uh, the cover, which I thought turned out great. And then I look at the back, and I don't often pay attention to these blurbs, but one thing that caught my my eye when I was looking at it is like, these are the basketball writers of basketball writers. 
burbs here. I mean, we have Jack McComb, who wrote one of my all-time favorite basketball books that came out last year, Dream Team. Uh, you know, Chris Ballard, who writes amazing basketball. I mean, Ballard and Jenkins, the way they do basketball for SI is nuts. They're so good. Uh-huh. You know, huge names. What does it mean to get guys like this on there? How important is this, do you think, to a book? I mean, they're on all of them, so it must be important to some degree. But they, you know, sometimes they're overlooked, but they stuck out to me this time for some reason. It's funny. The blurb thing is really, uh, someone should write a story about blurbs, right? It's really interesting. So I do, I, there are guys in the business, like Mitch Album is known for not doing blurbs, Right. And I always think, I don't know him, I'm sure he has, or, or I don't know, maybe he has his reasons. I always think it's like, if, if you don't have a, if it's one something, if you don't have time, you're busy. Like, I've, I've certainly said no to people if I'm in the middle of a project and blah, blah, blah. But like, chasing blurbs sucks, all right? It's, it's embarrassing. You're asking for a favor where there's no payoff for that favor. Um, you know, it's kind of humiliating and you, you, you know, you ask in that awkward way and it's not fun, right? It's not fun. But we've all needed them. You know, like, for some reason, you need a blurb on the back. You need these blurbs on the back of your book to legitimize the book. And when I hear that people don't give them, it actually drives me crazy. I think it's, it's there. I, and I have a million stories from different people that I, I wouldn't tell you or bore you with here anyway about authors who don't give blurbs uh, because they think it's beneath them. And it drives me up a freaking wall. Again, we, we've all been in the position where we have to ask for these things. Um, we're not that important. It's just writing. You know, it's not like I'm, I'm, nobody's getting saved here. So why wouldn't you do someone the favor if you can do it? Um, in this case, I've never had this many blurbs on a book before. And when my, my editor told me how many he wanted, I was like, really? You know, it's, it's kind of a lot of blurbs. There's and seven. it's really just yeah. calling. It's, how many do I have there? Seven? Seven, Six, yeah. Seven? Yeah, seven. Not a lot of blurbs. Usually you go three. And uh, it's, a, it's a couple of things like um, it's a lot of calling in favors, like I said. Like I've known, you know, McCallum I worked with for years. Chris Ballard I've been friends with for a long time. Uh, Seth I have, uh, I have Seth. I've known Seth for years. Jeremy uh, Adrian Wojcikowski. I actually, I've never, I don't think I've ever met, but I think we're Facebook friends, you know, and it's like most of these guys, like they just understand that it's part of the deal. And I don't even know if people read the whole books. If you, if you blur books, if you read the whole thing or you read a paragraph or whatever, it's, it's really just like, it's just kind of a necessity and people are doing you a favor. Not that's, you know, I, you know, I never, I never, I never assume that, like, the guy, like, thinks this is the greatest book of all time. I, I mean, I, you've been doing you a favor, and you hope that the blurb is a nice blurb and you can use it, and, you know, that sort of, I don't know. It's a pain. It's, it's like, it's my least favorite part is collecting blurbs because you feel like a goober doing it. Well, I think you certainly got, you got great ones, and you got ones from people whose name means something for basketball. I don't know. We've already done 25 minutes, and I only asked for 20. Again, it's Jeff Perlman. Uh, his book is Showtime, Magic, Kareem, Riley, and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s. A lot of us have been reading here in the Sportscasters community. Uh, Maybe a small oh God, one. That's, my that's all right. Good. My dog's on the show all the time. Everyone on the show knows my dog. So you can <laughs> be, be glad to know yours as well. Uh, you can find Jeff on Twitter. He's at Jeff Perlman. And um, let's see. I got a bunch of stuff, but uh, we're out of time. So that's all right. That's good enough. Uh, thank you so much. you got any other questions? I don't care. If you want to ask, okay. All right. Yeah, let's, let's bang a couple more out because I'm curious about a couple more things if you, if you don't, if you got a few more minutes. Uh, sure. One thing that was uh, just to uh, give people who, ha- who didn't take the time to read or who might be into reading, one thing that really I think got me right away and was really interesting to me, I was curious what you thought about it, were you not really, really interested in the in the idea that this 
team was like owned by a Canadian guy who somehow had a lot of success with the basketball team, but the hockey team was a failure. Did that interest? Did that not interest me? That blew me away. Like I was, I like I was like like reading this like over and over, like trying to get it straight. Like, okay, wait, this guy's from Hamilton, and he got the basketball team, and the basketball team blew up into this sensation. Oh, and yeah, right. The hockey team didn't win a Stanley Cup until two years ago. Yeah, I just just I know, a really interesting uh, uh, fact to me in the beginning of the book, and was one of the things that kind of kind of pulled me in, and I was just. Wondering if that occurred to you, or if that's just kind of a weird northern uh, or western New York kind of uh, observation. No, it did. It definitely did. Of course. I mean, he was a you know like this whole thing was buying hockey, and the and the NBA right. basically Jack Ken Cook we were talking about. And the NBA basically came along with it. Um, he didn't know anything about hoops. He didn't care about you know whatever Kareem or Jabbar. I mean, they were all just it was part of the gig for him. He he was able to, and I think he came to care a little bit, but he really didn't at the when he bought the Lakers. Um, it's a funny thing. He's a, you know, this is interesting. Like, no one's asked about this stuff, which I really do appreciate. Like, it's, you, you talked about, um, you know, going through the first two chapters to get into the book. And I actually always feel the same way. Like, I felt like I had to write about Jack Kent Cook, blah, 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 blah. But, like, you really want to get to the meats and meat and potatoes of it all. You, want, you do want to get to, like, Drafting Magic and then Michael Cooper and Wilkes and Kareem. But you kind of have to take this bridge to get there. And the hard part I always find is not making it boring. Like, my Jack Ken Cook chapter, I think, before I uh, before I trimmed it down, was like triple the length. And my wife was like, ugh, nobody cares about this stuff. And I know, I was like, I know, I don't even care about this stuff. But, you know, you get really into it and you report the hell out of it and you have all this information and you almost feel pressure to use it all. So, like, I had a ton about, like, Jack Ken Cook and hockey and him in Canada and blah, blah, blah. And I just ended up like getting rid of a ton of it. Cause I didn't think anyone would care. Cause I didn't even care. <laughs> and that, that and it's funny because that actually that drew me in. That's what pulled me in initially. It was just like, I want to find out more, you know, it's just like this, you know, the way, the way you put it about, you know, this guy coming in from Canada. I don't know. I guess that that's why you don't write to your audience. Right. Because I wouldn't have fit in. That is true. Well, I almost got rid of the, uh, I almost got rid of the Jerry Tarkinian stuff. Like I was, uh, I, the, the beginning of my book originally, the book started with Jerry Tarkinian's agent getting murdered. And I wrote it and I felt good about it. And then I was like, uh, I don't know. Maybe I need to just get past this and blah, blah, blah. And the wife was like, yeah, maybe we should get rid of it. And then I would show it to other people and everyone was fascinated by Jerry Tarkinian's agent getting murdered. So, by everyone, I mean like I have a few trusted eyes who I who I, I do uh, show the book to, so I kept it. But like, I don't know. You know, I I find the hardest part of a book is the beginning, and not like the writing part as far as like putting words on paper. It's like not boring the hell out of people because there have been a ton of books, biographies in my life, where I find myself skimming over the first two chapters because I just want to get to like what's going on. I don't want to read about like how his great 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 grandparents were in a farm in you know, Bulgaria in the 1700s. Like, I just want to get to what's going on now. So that I actually find out that this is not the question you asked, but I find out the hardest part of the book. Yeah, it, it, no, it, it, it's interesting just to see where you took it because really the question is just, to, just talking about the hook. I, I think the Blues Travelers have a 90s song about hook uh, in music and how, you know, sometimes everything else about the song can be nothing, but as long as the hook is okay, we'll draw you in. And, and maybe the beginning of a book is about that 
in some senses too. I know as a reader, sometimes there might be a great book there, but if by 40 pages I'm not in yet, I might bail, you know, and, right. and sometimes I try to try to pile through because I I've been told there's more there, so I, I'll stick it out. But, you know, and we read a lot of books now, you know, and we've, re- we've read books from people we know and people that we don't. So I'm finding this more and more, but yeah, no, it's, 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 it's really interesting. And, and it, it, it really is a great book, and uh, I think I have one one from the readers, and I'll, I'll let you go on this. Um, and this is something that uh, I think he's making fun of me. But uh, one of the readers asked, he said, I know Steve's too proud to ask, so I'll ask for him. You now have a book from every sport but hockey. Is there any chance of ever having a Jeff Perlman hockey book? And that's from uh, Jeff from Vegas, one of the guys who always reads with us. So, You know my new book is going to be about hockey. Really? No. No. Uh, no, there's like no chance of that ever happening. I just don't like hockey. <laughs> there's no chance. I just don't like hockey. I can uh I like it enough to take my kids to a game every now every, well, once every like five years. I love I love the live experience, but I just don't think uh I just don't see how it would hold my interest. And I don't know I just don't know enough about hockey. We need to find know. someone who writes good stuff who's willing to write a good hockey book because I couldn't even give you a favorite hockey book. I'll tell you who you should get. Well, there are two guys. You should either get Michael Farber, who's awesome, or uh, Kasia Kennedy, who just wrote the Pew Rose book. Did you have him on? Yes, yes. I did see the, 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 the Pete Rose book. Yeah, he would be yeah, good. Yeah, it's really good. He's Farber, a great writer, and he was the hockey writer at SI when I was there. Farber, I don't think we'd get into it anymore. He's like half out. You know what I mean? Like, he's just kind of, I think his time passed to do it. I don't, I don't know. Maybe. Kasia Kennedy. Kasia Kennedy's your hockey guest. That's our uh, guy. He's your, he's your great hope. All right, so you're not going to give us any clues about what the next book's about, so I'm not. I'm going to blow that off. I know it's going to be a while until we find out, but you are working on the next project already. I assume there's no victory laps. There's no. Tw- we're going to celebrate this one for 24 hours and get to work. There's none of that in the Jeff Perlman world of uh, book writing, right? All I do is I uh, I buy myself a t-shirt and then I move on to the next project. That's, so that's your 24 hours t-shirt. Move well. on. I mean, I don't know. You got to pay the bills, and you got to. And also, I like doing this, and I like digging in and. So uh, no, I've already started. It's football. I'll say that. It's, it's a football, football book. Actually. All right. I'll take that. That would be my second choice. So, again, you can find uh, at Jeff Perlman on Twitter, uh, jeffperlman.com. It's a great blog. Also, you've been, doing some, you've been doing some really good, interesting stuff for Bleacher Report. If we'd have more time, I'd talk to you about John Rocker and people commenting yeah. on articles. But we'll save that for next time. Uh, but definitely check out Bleacher Report. Jeff just recently wrote an article about looking back on maybe his most infamous article at Sports Illustrated, the John Rocker one. And uh, you're everywhere. You're blowing up, and uh, we always appreciate all the time you give us here. So thank you very much. And uh, no, thank, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right, thank you, Jeff. All right, thank you, Jeff Perlman, for being on the Sportscasters, being a friend to the show. We always appreciate that. All right, the greatest of all time has a wrinkle this week. It's really the greatest of 1991. We did this with 1994 a couple of weeks ago, and I was thinking about 1991 a lot over the weekend because it was the 20th anniversary, and that may or may not make you feel old, of the death of Kurt Cobain. 
Wow. And the that- 12th anniversary of the death of Wayne Staley. So, incredibly, Kurt Cobain has been dead longer than he was alive while I was. Wait, he died... 20 years eight ago. Eight years after, or eight years before Lane Staley did? Yes. Wow. 1994 and 2002. I felt like it was a week apart or something. Like, I don't know. That, that's amazing to me. I think today is actually, the day we record is the day that Kirk Wayne's body was found. The anniversary of the day his body was found. But anyway, 1999 meant the release of Nevermind. And uh, that's what I was thinking about, 1989 and... Or 91. 1991, excuse me. And it always, there's always this debate of Nevermind and 10, uh, which were both released in 1991. We're going to put 10 aside for the purposes Kinda of take this ourselves discussion out of it. Yeah. because we're obviously too big of Pearl Jam fans that we both say 10. So if we're going to include it, that's kind of pointless. And it really didn't break until 92 anyway. So, which yeah, you told me that, and that it came out like in April though, so it must have August. taken a little, August. Okay, yeah. right. So it must have taken a little while to yeah, it did. Catch so, uh, so all right, we're gonna try to predict too what the other. Let's start with album, the greatest album of 1991, and I'm going to say that you said the greatest album of 1991 is the Metallica album. Um, do you want me to give mine? Yeah, then? go ahead. So then you can give mine. Yeah. I actually went with the Temple of the Dog album, which was released a few months before that. I also forgot how close to ten the Temple of the Dog album was released. I think that's maybe what I was thinking of when I said April. Um, that's obviously very personal to me, but it was either that or never mind. Uh, I've never been the biggest Nirvana guy, but I was when it came out. Uh, and I mean, going back to when I was in high school, rocking albums like that might have gotten more play than anything anything I own. So at least it would be up there. But I'm going to say the greatest of all time album, or greatest album of 1991 was Temple of the Dogs, Temple of the Dog. And you're going to say that I said... I'm going to, I had two guesses here. Uh, actually, it could be a lot of things, because there were a lot of metal albums that year too. But I'm going to guess that yours is Bad Motor Finger. I also said Temple of the Dog. Okay. And I... Really thought long and hard about the User Illusion albums. That's right. That's the other one I saw. But I wasn't sure which one I liked better. They split the vote, I guess you could say. And I thought a lot about Nevermind, which was certainly, there's no arguing, the most influential album of the year. Sure. Problem is it's not my favorite Nirvana album. I like In Utero much better. Yeah. So it's not to say that, Nevermind couldn't have been the best album of 91 and In Utero the best album of 93 could have went that way just didn't I think in the end I just think the Temple of the Dog record is brilliant and that piece of music is from beginning to end incredible and I know why it's personal to you and that even makes an added kind of thing for me as well just because I care about you right and uh, knowing that part of it increases its value as well. So I went with uh, Temple of the Dog as well. All right. Uh, next we did movies. And when we did 1994, uh, I think I could have nailed like your top three or four. What what I could have at least thought, like, okay, these are the ones that you're going through in your head. This one is really tough for me. So I'm going to guess that your movie, your greatest movie of all time from 1991, is What About Bob? <laughs> And you were, that was the 
one I considered, but I ultimately did go with Silence of the Lambs. Okay. So I sat there and said, do I want to go <laughs> with the serious route or do I want to go with the funniest route? What About Bob by far is the funniest and maybe most rewatchable movie on the list. Like it wasn't I, a great year for movies compared I could, to 94. No, I could sit down and watch, uh, watch What About Bob a lot. I put Silence of the Lambs ahead because I, at the time – and maybe I didn't see it in 1991. I was only 11 then, so I don't know if I sat down right. and could fully appreciate Silence of the Lambs yet. But I know the day that I seen Silence of the Lambs, I'd never quite seen a movie like that. Right. So I guess that's why I put it ahead. Because nothing will ever shake the scene of her like walking through the cells the first time when she goes down to the where everyone's being held and right. the one guy's like flicking semen at her and shit and it's just incredibly intense so yeah yeah i went with silence of the lambs but i considered what about bob and that was my guess for you was what about bob mine actually is terminator 2 uh i think from a science fiction standpoint should have said that yeah it was about as good as a movie maybe had ever been at that point the use of uh the use of cgi may have been revolutionary at that time i think that was James Cameron. I think he did the abyss before that. And there was a little bit of that with like the liquid monster thing in the abyss, but nothing like the liquid metal Terminator two guy. And, uh, that, yeah, that for me, it was, the story was actually really good too. In a science fiction movie, which at the time wasn't all that common. Usually they were just kind of campy or like a lot of the stuff that Arnold did, which is great, but, uh, not like Terminator two. The other ones I considered were Beauty and the Beast or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, but I couldn't get there with either of those. So Yeah, Beauty and the Beast is number one, I think, on like the Rotten Tomatoes for the year. Yeah. And uh, just no interest. I've yeah, never I, seen it. I had uh, – I my younger brothers and sister were raised by Disney movies, so – I'm sure that, that Ninja Turtles movie is the one in 1991 I had the most fun going to see. I know for sure yeah, I went yeah. to see it in the theater. So Yeah, I think I did too. But – uh. All right, the greatest sporting event of 1991. There's only two correct answers to this question, so I'm going to say that you said Super Bowl 25. I didn't because I couldn't bring myself to do it. But I mean, that's probably the right answer. I Maybe mean, it might have. It was the closest Super Bowl ever at the time. But obviously, I didn't like the way it ended. So, so. then, if you're not going to say that, you better say what I said. All right, my number one sports moment. Boy, I don't know what it would be. This is going to be something about the Saints, I would guess. No. But- I my number one sports moment looking through them was the Chicago Bulls first championship. Wow! Just based Shocking. on the importance to basketball history, the greatest player ever gets his first title, first of six titles, and they go on a run that is almost unheard of by any s- sports team. Fair enough, but the greatest sporting event of 1991, if it isn't Super Bowl, wait, is this a WrestleMania? It's one? It's the World Series. Oh, it's a. Game seven of the World Series that goes zero zero into the tenth inning, and this is won by the home team. Oh, and Game six was a, a walk off home run by Kirby Puckett to make a game seven with the and we're gonna see you tomorrow night call. Oh, I don't think there's any way it can. Who be is the, uh, the ninety one World Series or Super? It's got to be that or Super Bowl twenty five. I think. That's probably right. You make a decent argument for your. Mine is more about the significance in history because the. The series itself, I don't think it was all that close. I think it was 4-1 or 4-2. Was the that Bulls. the Sonics one? It was the first one. Uh, I know. The first run, I'm pretty sure they played the Sonics, the Suns, and 
probably whoever I'm forgetting is going to be who it the is. Championship. Yeah. Um, the but, other one I considered was I, or I, the one I would have guessed for you would have been I would have guessed the Penguins championship just because I know you're kind of a and that was a Penguins sweep guy. though you know right so it wasn't very good so that wasn't very good and it was the Lakers first one was the Lakers for oh the that's Wolves. right yeah, yeah four to one so yeah mine is more about its place in history I can't and that's you, a fine can't argument. tell you I remember anything about it I, I remember much more about the Bills Super Bowl but I couldn't bring myself to put that as the, as the winner I mean the Bills Super Bowl as a place in history is phenomenal too, because of just the cultural significance of the Super Bowl. while there's a war going on and Whitney Houston and all that fun stuff. But I, I couldn't bring myself to make that the best sports moment of the year. All right. The greatest album of 1991 for both of us is Temple of the Dog. The greatest movie of 1991. Don said Terminator two. I said silence of the lambs. And for the greatest sporting event of 91, I said the world series. I said the bulls first of six championships. We're going to take a break and talk a little wrestling with David Shoemaker. Our next guest is the author of The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling, which he also covers for Grantland. He was the author of one of the best weekly or monthly or whenever it happened, I guess, series about wrestlers, The Dead Wrestler of the Week on Deadspin, and he's also the co-host of the Cheap Heat podcast. A warm sportscaster's welcome for the second time to David Shoemaker. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing great, man. Just coming off, just got back from New Orleans, so you know uh, the excitement's still running high in my veins. There. Now I have a question about that. Do they did they do they issue you like a press pass? Like, is there a press row at WrestleMania? There, I, you know, I, I wasn't a part of it, but they do have like a media. I think they put them. They put them in like a, a skybox, basically. Okay. Um, but it's yeah, definitely not like you know old school press row or anything like that. They they uh, they 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 do they do accommodate a lot of people. Gotcha. So, I've been reconnecting with wrestling through the network uh, because I know we talked a lot about how I was more of an old school fan the last time you were on, and obviously the network definitely appealed to me. And the thought of trying it out for a week for free was definitely sucked me in. And I figured, you know, I'll stick with it. They they say there was a six month commitment, but I don't know how they could enforce it. At least the way I signed up, they only charged me nine ninety nine every month. I don't know. I think I could probably blow them off if I wanted, but I won't because I love the network. And um, I enjoyed watching the Hall of Fame, and I think I enjoyed WrestleMania. I'm not here. Here's here's one thing I have to ask you about because you've watched a lot more wrestling in the last ten years than I have. Is it just me, or is is the product in general very deliberate and very kind of slow? It seems like the the matches are at a, a slow pace, like. Uh, it doesn't seem like they're not athletic enough to go faster. It just just seems like the choreography in general is much more deliberate. That- yeah, um, you know, it's funny. I haven't really heard that from anybody, but I can totally see why you're saying it. I mean, because having not watched for ten years, I mean, the, there was there was certainly a period where uh, the in ring style in the WWE or the WWF is really heavily influenced by. Uh, you know, by the kind of high flying wrestling that came out of Mexico and Japan, and also uh, that also had a home in ECW, and just kind of the ECW like kind of schmozzy match style in general. Um, 
And, you know, I, I'd have to go back and actually like, like think about it and read about it, but, or watch, watch the tape. But I, but I, it, you know, the, the, the WWE style, uh, is certainly a more methodical, slowed down style. If you go back and watch, well, on the network, if you go watch the old, you know, Madison Square Garden or Boston Garden card. I love that. Uh, really. it's a really slow style. Um, and and that's kind of what they were known for. And my if, if I'm, I'm I am sort of guessing here, but I'm, but my guess is that you you were exposed to you know a kind of like a, like an you what you're remembering was the outlier, and now we're kind of back in a more traditional WWE style. Although yeah, the stuff the stuff fair. that they do is certainly more up tempo than the you know the olden days, and the and you know the the influence of of uh, sort of you know contemporary indie wrestling and the kind of the expanding movesets is, is certainly taken the WWE style such as, it, such as it is in a whole new direction. Well, let's, let's backtrack for a second. Uh, the Hall of Fame, I watched, I missed Lido, which I heard was very long, and then I caught Jake, which was incredibly powerful, and then the silliness of Mr. T, which we talked about for a second, and then into uh, some of the other inductions and the Ultimate Warrior and his 35-minute speech about what, I'm not sure, but that seemed to fit him and the character, I guess. Uh, what were your impressions of the night? What stuck out for you as someone who, who covers the business and has seen many of these inductions? I actually think I've seen them all, actually. Even yeah. though I've been in and out, I, I always mean, watch the whole thing. Uh, I mean, the, the first thing that jumps out of you is that it was really long. It's kind of, I mean, you, you know, you, you want to give these people as much time as they want to say their piece, but it also kind of boggles the mind um, that that a that a company that's such a well oiled machine ninety nine you know or three hundred and sixty four nights out of the year um, kind of would let people go out on stage without previewing their scripts you know I mean it just seems sort of amazing um, that said yeah you're right I mean there, I don't have any complaints of a night when I got the speech from Jake that I got and I got the the Scott Hall segment was really really yes. touching too he yes. was great up there um, and. Uh, and you know, and like you know, I, like I said to you earlier, the Mr. T piece was. Uh, and I know it wasn't. I know that he was being genuine, but it seemed like it came off like the greatest piece of performance art I've seen in a long time. Uh, and you could almost make that case for Warrior. I mean, listen, I was really touched by Warrior's speech, um, but you know, I mean, he, he spent. I mean, if you you were saying you didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, well, the entire times. speech I mean, was in some in some way was about proving that he wasn't a jerk or he wasn't you know the asshole right. that WWE had had previously portrayed him as in their amazing uh dvd the the self-destruction of the ultimate or self-destruction of the ultimate warrior i think that's what it's called yeah it sounds um yeah and uh he was really determined to kind of shake that image that that had been out there um but the sort of like lack of introspection and general general obliviousness sort of like it, it didn't it didn't go against that that reputation that he had earned it just really helped explain it to a great to a great degree so but and then also he did came out on raw on monday night and cut a promo as the ultimate warrior like yep. in the full snarling gravelly voice and he basically and in, in my mind he just like translated his 40 minute speech from the hall of fame into a, you know warrior promo ease and uh that was that was way more compelling i think yeah that was it was great yeah i did you did you feel a little bit overwhelmed underwhelmed I'm sorry by the reaction to him was it a little less than you expected Well this whole car I mean yeah it is it's weird like I had said before the Hall of Fame that this is like a kind of the Hall of Fame of people that I mean a lot of people that have kind of uh kind of 
bizarre reputations, like bizarre is not the right word, kind of damaged reputations amongst like the the wrestling community, um, not fans, like the actual other wrestlers, uh, all for all for completely different reasons. Uh, it's sort of amazing though that everybody at the end of the day is so beloved, except the Warriors still kind of has this weird this weird sheen of of uh, distaste. I mean, listen, I loved him as a kid, and I get the thing where. Uh, you kind of like he 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 seems like such a weird like passing fad that you're embarrassed to have been a part of, and you know also all the backstage stuff that every fan knows about now that he was yeah. just sort of a jerk. Um, but you know I really tried to like to to be super excited the whole weekend about Warrior because it's uh, it's he was such a big part of my childhood, um, and yeah, but I think that the underwhelming aspect comes from the fact that the Warrior was the headliner. And, and nobody was quite sure how to feel about that. You know, it just sort of like, it just sort of cast a weird pall over the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I was at WrestleMania 6, lucky enough. That's the only one I've ever been to. But I was there with my dad. Toronto's only 90 minutes from here. And he, I got a good report card or something, and he took me. We didn't have great seats, but I remember, you know, just what a magical night that was. And I just felt, I guess I just expected a little bit more uh, compared to some of the reactions sometimes that, some people get who are back for the first time you know it's not like they there's he's been around and around and around it just I well guess. i mean but to wrestling fans he has been around kind of perpetually is this sort of oddball pseudo right-wing crank on the internet <laughs> right. um like his his sort of his his second act as just like a as a general interest talking head who goes by the name of warrior is just such a weird thing uh, and I think that for you know for he, a lot of the, a lot of the opinions that he had, that he's espoused on the air have been uh, a little bit uh, have not been the most popular positions. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons why, um, but he's he's uh, you know I think everybody loves the Ultimate Warrior in the face paint running to the ring, uh, but you know there's the guy under the paint that people are not quite sure what to do with. All right, so. To me, someone who loves the history of wrestling is my favorite thing about it. I was so excited to be able to see two very historic things at WrestleMania 30. One is the start with Hogan, The Rock, and Austin in the ring together. Arguably three of the four guys that you would put on the Mount Rushmore of WWF slash E history. Uh, A friend and I were debating whether you would put San Martino or maybe Cena or... I mean, we threw a couple more names out as the fourth guy, but I, I don't think we thought you would take any of those three guys off. So I was excited to be able to see that moment. And also, I, one thing I would have said going in is there's no way they're going to be able to surprise me because I'm that kind of a jaded fan. I feel like I've seen it all, and certainly from the second I found out that Daniel Bryan was going to wrestle in a match versus Triple H in the first match and the winner was going to get into the championship match, I, there was no doubt in my mind he was going to walk away the champion and the show was going to end everyone saying yes 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 but they shocked the hell out of me with the ultimate war, or with the undertaker thing yeah i mean i i agree that, that the beginning was was cool and it was just the kind of the right amount of that sort of element to yep. the show the show uh, compared to the last couple of years was immaculately produced and segmented and everything um uh paced all that stuff so uh the the daniel bryan thing i agree it did exactly the way like it went sort of the most straightforward way possible but i'll tell you what when i i was there i was close to the ring live at wrestlemania and i bought into just about every false finish um that you know that came in the last five minutes or whatever 
uh, you know, I, 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 I was keeping track of the time a little bit, but on some level, I really wouldn't have been surprised just because of the way the past, the past three months have played out. I wouldn't have been surprised if, if WWE, despite everything, you know, had gone, had gone, gone ahead with a, you know, with Batista as champion or, or, you know, left the belt with Randy Orton just to continue to antagonize the Daniel Bryan fans. I, it ended perfectly. I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Um, the Undertaker thing was, uh, one, one of the, the moment it happened, one of the singular sports experiences of my life. Uh, I, I, I've been struggling and failing to think of any situation in which it would even be feasible that 77 or however many thousand fans that were in the Superdome could be struck in, it would be stricken with just absolute confusion and, and silence at the same time. I mean, it, it was the most bizarre experience to be a part of but i'm with you you know there were a lot of people there that night that were really mad uh you know maybe i'm just you know always too busy looking for the sort of meta storyline but the fact that i could that i that that they were able to garner a reaction on that scale almost no matter what it was for was just amazing yeah they i was certainly wasn't mad i mean i it didn't bother me in that way because I feel like that he had his, I don't think Undertaker was forced to lose. You know what I mean? So there's no reason to be mad in my mind. I, I'm sure he, he had to have okayed this on some level. It's not. I'm like, sure it uh, was his idea. Yeah, it, it's not like it was a Bret Hart, uh, Shawn Michaels uh, type of a swerve. But it was, it was shocking. Like, they shocked me. Like, my jaw hit the floor. Because I was sitting there the whole time counting the false finishes in that match and saying, all right, how many of these do we have to sit through before he finally just pins the guy, goes 22-0, and we move on to the next thing. And it just didn't happen that way. And I guess the one thing that I want to ask you as someone who's more in it is, what exactly do you think the logic is behind ending it in this way to that guy? It seems a little strange to me to end it to yeah, a Yeah, I had a piece coming out on Grandland this week about it. Uh, it, it. That's what everybody's asking. Um, I mean, I think that, 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 that first and foremost, Taker has just a ton of respect for, for Brock Lesnar, for anyone that, that, you know, that reached the level that he did in the UFC. I mean, the Undertaker's a huge fan of, of, of mixed martial arts fighting, and I think that it probably uh, made him happy to, to if, you know, if he finally lost, that he was losing to a legitimate, you know, badass. Um, but I think, I mean, my, this is based on absolutely no reporting and no, you know, secret knowledge. My guess is that... Uh, Taker came back. Undertaker came back to you know agreed to work this program and probably only halfway through training for it, you know I think two or three weeks ago he probably realized that he was done. Yeah. Um, and at that point he said you know this is my last one. I mean then again he hasn't even announced a retirement or anything like that. This is all speculation. I think he realized he couldn't keep going the way he was going. Uh, and and you know it was probably his call completely to say to lose. Uh, I've said before, you know, many times that the streak is almost more is probably more valuable to WWE to be kept intact at this point, just for like future DVD sales. Um, but, but you know, if and if he was if Undertaker was if the streak was going to end, it was going to be because Mark Calloway, the guy who plays the Undertaker, is going to say, you know, every wrestler has the responsibility to go out on his back. I mean, that's the industry term. You got to lose on the way out the door to make somebody who's still there look good. And. uh and I mean that's 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 my guess as to what happened. Yeah, that that all makes a hundred percent sense to me. I, it's just a little, I guess, 
like if if we had that whole conversation, I didn't know who you were talking about, I wouldn't have guessed that guy, I guess. But, you know, hey, uh, I think it's a great, great boost to, to obviously to to his return and hopefully he sticks around long enough uh, to to get the benefit of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much benefit he really gains. Uh, uh, so, I mean, so I understand, like, the critique. I mean, my guess is that, like I, like I was saying, that he was in place uh, before it was determined that he was going to win. So, I mean, it was just sort of like when Taker realized he was done, that was this was the match he was already having. And so he was going to – he would probably lose no matter who he was in the feud with. Anyway, I mean, to that point that you made uh, – Last night, I mean, on Monday night on Raw, he, he came out at the, early in the show and he and Heyman gloated about the win. And then later in the show, Paul Heyman took on a new uh, a new wrestler and right. the wonderful Cesaro. Uh, but, you know, recent experience has shown us that Paul, Paul Heyman doesn't manage two guys at the same time. Uh, when he picks somebody that's not Brock Lesnar, that means Brock Lesnar is taking a three or four month vacation. So... Um, you know, take that for what it's worth. Yeah, that's the that's the odd part, and I thought of that last night too. Yeah, I just don't. I don't think it was. I don't think it was a deliberate plan. I mean, I think it was just. It was. It was. Uh, he was. The feud with Brock was was already in place, and then he decided he was gonna, you know, that he was gonna lose. So anyway. Yeah, for me, WrestleMania three will always be a ten. After I finished the show, I said that felt like a six. I felt like if I were to watch. Every WrestleMania and and judge them uh, objectively, that'd probably be around the fifteenth best one. I felt like. Did you what, have a, this, this, this WrestleMania thirty? Yeah. Oh man, I loved it. I thought it was really yeah. great. So I mean, like, like I guess I'm, I that. look at a lot of like you know the technical stuff, uh, surprises and and you know matches that are well put together and everything. But man, I thought it was really great. And the, and the response that you know I know I was really close in there. I mean, it's hard to really judge. Uh, but the responses that I've heard were uh, right after the event were over the moon. I mean, I don't even, I don't know how it's going to kind of shake out, but, um, you know, people that I, people that were, I, I texted and tweeted a lot of people who were watching at home to see what they thought. Cause obviously I was watching from a different perspective and I heard time and time again, people saying this is the best WrestleMania since 17, which is a huge statement. Right. Uh, you know, and who knows? I mean, I'll, I, I really, I actually, I need to rewatch it from start to finish on the network and, and, uh, you know, form my own opinion, I guess. Yeah. I, I guess where I'm coming from is that I think I, I, I didn't say this, but I saw someone describe it this way and I think it's perfect. If Undertaker wins that match. We might be talking about how it's one of the worst matches of his career. It's kind of really boring. So, I mean, if you take the shock out of it, I guess the shock is part of it, but they still spent 25 minutes kind of boring me. Um, I just, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm underrating it a little bit. Maybe I should watch it again too. But there, it was it was better than I thought. And maybe I'm underselling it even to the point that I liked it because I did enjoy it. And I liked the ending. And I want to ask you about this before we have to go. Is I, I, lo- I love and it's incredible how over uh, Daniel Bryan is. I haven't seen someone that over in a long time. It gives me chills, actually. It's an incredible vibe, and it's such a cool way to end a WrestleMania. That's the way they always ended when I was a kid, with that incredible high moment, and I love that about it. Can they let this guy run with this for a while? Do you think the plan is to ride him out as the champ for a while, or is this going to be a short run? I mean, I... I love long runs, and I'd love to see them give a littler 
everything, every reason they're saying that in the storyline that he shouldn't be the champion. I love the idea of that being the champion. I'd like to see him carry it out. Do you think that's the plan, or is it going to be shorter than that? I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to imagine to imagine a super. I mean, a super long run for anybody these days. CM Punk was able to do it because John Cena was, you know, basically co-headlining every show. Um, right. There was no title changes in 2012 at all, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, yeah, I mean, I, I can. I mean, I to, to me, it doesn't matter as much. You know, I I like the idea of long reigns, but pra- but you know, when you talk about the actual practicality of it, uh, Daniel Bryan has risen to the top, and whether I mean, and and you know, it was important for him to get the belt. Don't get me wrong; it would be great if he ran with it for a while. Don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, on some you know sort of meta level, he is you know at a, he's officially a WWE headliner now. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's what's, that's kind of the awesomest part that they had that enough faith in him to do that. Um, I think that they'll run with it as long as they can. I think that WWE is probably aware of the, aware of the, you know, the, the fact that a lot of fans think they don't have faith in him still. And, uh, and so, you know, I think that they'll want to defy that to some degree. That said, you know, a lot of it's going to depend on, um, TV ratings and, and, you know, pay-per-view. I don't really know exactly how they're counting the pay-per-view buys now since, since they're on the network right. as well as, as uh, I'm sure a few people are still pay-per-view, getting on pay-per-view, but it'll, it'll, you know, the numbers will tell the story about how long Daniel Bryan gets to stay champion because, um, you know, WWE is really, you know, despite the fact that, that, you know, people, a lot of fans that we hear hate John Cena and love Daniel Bryan or love CM Punk, I mean, WWE has a really, you know, solid solid diagnostic department that'll tell you exactly how popular somebody is according to merch sales and everything else. And, and, uh, you know, that'll be a big part of it. That said, you know, um, uh, my one disappointment from, from Sunday was when, or I guess on Monday, WWE showed a, uh, during raw, they showed a bunch of kind of mainstream headlines about WrestleMania 30, which is, you know, part of the thing that they're very want to do to kind of bask in, in their mainstream recognition in front of their sort of like, you know, regular wrestling fans. But uh, it was sort of disappointing that all these, play, all these, you know, all these mainstream outlets covered WrestleMania 30 and they all were talking about The Undertaker and nobody was talking about Daniel Bryan. Um, but I'm writing, but that's part of what I'm writing about this week. I mean, it's, uh, you know, wrestling sort of exists in the past tense for so, for, for, in so many ways. And, and, uh, and, you know, The Undertaker is just a great opportunity to kind of like, Embrace the wrestling history um, in the in in the moment, and and uh, you know maybe that'll be Daniel Bryan in ten or twenty years. Well, uh, David writes for Grantland, and it sounds like he's got a great piece this week about the Undertaker, as he's mentioned. And his podcast, Cheap Pete, is one I would definitely recommend. I enjoy checking it out from time to time. And uh, I want you can find him also on Twitter at aka the masked man. And I guess just I want to ask you real quick, just to let you go, because I want to get your opinion on it before I do. Is the network uh, A to F? Where do you put it so far, and where it's at? What have you liked? What haven't you liked? I've well, loved it. To be, you know. Yeah, I mean, I love it too. I've said before that I I, I didn't I didn't even realize how much I was going to love it. Uh, I kind of came from an opposite place from you, where I'm just sort of like I feel like I watch enough wrestling, you know, <laughs> and right. and. Uh, uh, when I got the network, I was just stunned with how often I found myself, um, you know, just wasting time watching old wrestling matches. Uh, it's really, really cool. 
the interface, everything is really good. As far as I know, the streaming of WrestleMania went off fairly much, with, pretty much without a hitch. Perfect. And uh, that's sort of that's incredibly impressive if, yep. if that's the case. Yep. No, not even uh, one buffer at my house. We watched the whole show from beginning to end without anything to any glitch. Yeah, I mean it's, that's absolutely amazing. And they and you know they'll have uh, more and more sort of like new original programming as the weeks and months progress. And that's always stuff to look forward to. But just from a historical aspect, it's it's mind blowing how much different it is to watch uh, watch old wrestling on you know in like relative high, relatively high definition on your iPad or on your computer screen compared to watching it on YouTube or whatever whatever access we had before you know let alone an old VHS tape I guess um, and it really does just make everything so much more vital and so much more real and 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 I love it. Uh, you know, they, they they released the first numbers about how many subscribers they have the the, the other day, and I think they were they, it was sort of a disappointing number. Um, I mean, it was like a few degrees above above uh, disappointing, but you know, not nearly where they wanted to get. Uh, but well, it'll be interesting to see how much potential there is for growth as you know after WrestleMania. Um, regardless of what happens, it's been a great thing for wrestling fans so far. And a really cool way, a really, I mean, a really, it's really cool to see wrestling innovating, not just in the wrestling industry, I mean, kind of re- innovating for, like, what media might be all looking like in 10 years or something. So, um, you know, I, as, it, it's just cool to be a part of that. One of my, my favorite thing to do when I watch one of the old shows is if they have the disclaimer on there, is trying to figure out why. I was, <laughs> and my favorite one was I was watching, I think, a Boston house show or whatever, and I couldn't figure out what the heck it was. And finally it dawned on me that it must have been there was a mixed tag match that had uh, the Haiti kid in it. And they kept calling him a midget. So that had to be it. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of that stuff. I mean, the, the, <laughs> I couldn't it's, figure it's, it out. Like, kudos to WWE for not like bleeping that stuff out. The, the, the level of like on PC uh, on the network is the really, charts. really, yeah, really just, just mind blowing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 super cool, and that's really funny that they're aware enough to do that sort of thing. All right, one more time, I just want to give everything. The book is great. If you didn't read it when we were mentioning it every week, and uh, David came on to talk about it, it's the Squared Circle: Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling. Uh, Cheap Heat is the podcast, and Grantland. Make sure you go there for the columns, aka the Masked Man on Twitter. Thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks, bud. All right, I want to thank all the great guests today, David Shoemaker of Grantland, Jeff Perlman, the author of the Lakers book Showtime, and Chris Ballard, who made his return to the Sportscasters today. Uh, please check out our website, www.sports-casters.com, where you can find today's episode as well as uh, the last one with Jane Levy, Will Leach, and Matt Tabram. Jane Levy actually made news on our podcast last week by officially announcing for the first time anywhere publicly that she's writing a book about Babe Ruth. Cool. So that was cool. Nobody noticed. but <laughs> Well, Ed Sherman did. Yeah, I figured it would be yeah, on the, the Sherman it Report. It was on the Sherman Report. So thanks to Ed for thinking of yeah, he's us. He's on top of it. Yeah. Uh, also, you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Uh, you can email us, especially if we screwed something up. I'm sure you will, the sportscasters at gmail.com. 
And uh, I think that's enough. Yeah. We didn't say who we were today, but we're just going to not do that. No, because people send us nasty emails about everything we screwed right. up. <laughs> I did I did say your name, though, a couple of times. So people probably know that you're Don. Yeah, my daughter's Molly. Yeah. <laughs> but, all right. Go ahead. One last thing. Who's? Oh, it's me first, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about this today for one last thing as the NHL season comes to an end. And I wanted to ask you, Don, do you think the NHL thinks they had a good season for the NHL? They did a lot of things this year. They played a lot of outdoor games. They took a break for the Olympics. They switched playoff and divisional formats. So there was a lot of change to the game. And I wonder if you think, in retrospect, before the playoffs, just everything, because the playoffs is a constant. Playoffs is always going to be the best time of the year for the NHL. Right. But from October to April, do you think the NHL thinks or will think they had a good year? And then I'll give you my opinion. Yeah, I think so. I Part of this is a tough thing for me to answer because obviously my focus is going to be on the Sabres. And, and it was when misery. they're terrible. The all-time worst. Right. And I'm excited that they're this bad because I'm excited for what it can mean in the future. But for right now, it makes them almost unwatchable. They were the lowest scoring team in the league. And they could go out and score, I think, like 35, 36 goals tonight and still be the lowest scoring team in the league. I sort of jokingly in our hotel room in London – this summer said they're going to win 20 games, yeah. and we all laughed about it. They have 21 wins. Yeah. That's and like, how, like, a I handful of those are shootouts. So, probably, sarcastic, kind of. Like I knew they were going to be bad, yeah. but I was even setting the bar saying 20 wins at a, a level I didn't think was reachable in the yeah, modern era. Even when they were bad in the past, like just the way the NHL is, it feels like, yeah, they look really bad, but they could finish in ninth or eighth. But, just, yeah, this year has been a miser- miserable experience. But – uh I think the NHL would think the Winter Classic games, whatever they're calling it, the Stadium Series, I would think they would think they were a success. I think they rated fairly well on TV. I think as a fan, I think they overdid it a little bit. Um, but, yeah, that went pretty well. The Olympics. They that, got the moment, the Oshi thing, right. which went crazy. And it was, a at a, so. it was on a Saturday morning when people were there to see it. That was pretty cool. Other than that, I was excited for the Olympics, but it didn't really deliver for me. Um, And not just because the U.S. whatever flamed out a little bit toward the end. Just it wasn't a great, great tournament. Um, And the playoffs, I think the change is good. I think it's hard to see how much effect it'll have right away. But the immediate effect it has is that there's not a Washington or a Tampa Bay or some lousy team making it in just because they're in that lousy division. Uh the teams that are in there all deserve to be, and the wild card teams are the teams that maybe would have been snubbed in the past because of the three division system. So, yeah, I would say the NHL had a good year, but like I said, that's hard for me to say because I'm a little bit of a of a passenger. I'm a more passive fan this year than I would be when my team is interesting. Yeah, I think you said it right. I'm going to kind of agree in the sense that I think that they're going to look back and say that 2013-14 season was a good one from them. Uh, the Olympics maybe wasn't, they didn't get the Canada USA finish that, which was, I guess, impossible anyway, since they played in the semi. So it was never going to happen regardless, uh, or at least based on how the teams finished in the round robin, which I guess is what actually dictated the fact that it would be a semi, not a final. But, uh, they got a great moment there with TJ Oshie and I, I I think they had a great January 1st game at Michigan stadium 
Yeah. The big house. I mean, just a beautiful picture of snow and a good game between Detroit and Toronto. And 24-7 was decent. Maybe not the best version of it, but decent. And, yeah, overall, I think they had a they had a good season. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of playoffs we get with the new format. But I tell you that I am really excited about some of the first-round matchups. Like, we're going to get to see a San Jose-Los Angeles in round one and Colorado versus Chicago in round one, those four teams are all going to probably have 100 points and they'll be playing each right. other in the first round, which is really exciting right off the bat. And even like the one, the number one seed in the West is going to be St. Louis. They're going to play a team like Minnesota, who's relatively interesting to me. They have stars on their team, interesting players like, you know, Zach Parise and, Jason Pominville. Who's their goalie? That was, their goalie was phenomenal until he had Backstrom. some heart problem. No, am I thinking of the wrong? Harding. Harding. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, there's definitely going to be some really interesting interesting matchups, uh, including the Rangers and, and Flyers in the first round. And The playoffs are always Yeah, always so we great. know the playoffs will be good, and I wanted yeah. to kind of keep that out of it. But ultimately, for my one last thing, I think we both agree the NHL did have a good year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my last thing this week is kind of a two-parter, kind of a good for you and a not so good for you. And we'll start with the not so good for you. The there's an annual charity game. I don't remember who it goes to benefit, but between the New York City firefighters and the New York City Police Department, both guys who rightfully so have been uh, given hero status yes. throughout the years. Tough for, jobs. Yeah. That said, at a charity game. <laughs> Uh, for kids, I'm almost positive you don't want to break out into a brawl. Line brawl. Yeah, despite bench clearing. <laughs> despite the uh, the cheering from the people in the stands and the camera, uh, it's bad luck. It, it doesn't look good no. in a charity game to break out in a brawl. That sounds like something out of Slapshot or something. That they they should be embarrassed for that. Uh, do better at that next year. Good for you goes out to and we never touch on women's sports, but uh, the NCAA women's tournament is going to conclude with Notre Dame, who is 37-0, facing UConn, who is 39-0. So that's pretty awesome. You're going to have an undefeated champion in the uh, NCAA Women's League. Uh, I guess that could maybe show you that it's not as competitive. Maybe all the talent is not as... It wasn't possible even a year ago because Notre Dame and UConn were both in the Big East. Now Notre Dame is in the ACC for all sports but football which made this possible. They didn't meet each other in the regular season. They may have played each other up to three times already by now. Sure, right. So because of that wrinkle, we get this incredible final, which I know Richard Deitch is thrilled about. It's he's kind of the guy, the one voice out there saying, watch women's this. college basketball, watch yeah, yeah, it. And yeah. he's, he's right this time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Good for them. Uh, they're going to get the best final possible, it sounds like. 